Case Files, The Man Who Murdered Himself In 1882, Victor Warfield and his wife moved into an old mansion in the country. A mansion, Victor soon discovered, with a mystery hanging over it. Victor became obsessed with the house's original builder, Andrew Darwood. He told his wife that one day Darwood simply vanished. Soon thereafter, the house was taken over by a Mr. Anton Dickerson, who purchased the mansion for the low price of the taxes on the land. The suddenness of Andrew Darwood's disappearance played at Victor's mind, as did the lack of a funeral for Darwood, and the suspicious fact that Andrew Darwood and Anton Dickerson shared the same initials. One night, as Victor mulled over his obsession, a ghost-like figure appeared in the parlor, standing in front of the fireplace. The specter swore to Victor that he knew the secret of the house. Andrew Darwood was a paranoid man, living in constant fear that the crimes of his past would catch up to him. For you see, the house he built was paid for with money he stole from a gold miner. At this revelation, Victor Warfield guessed that the vengeful miner tracked Darwood down and killed him. No, the ghostly figure told him. The real truth is that Darwood faked his own death to escape such a predictable fate. He grew a mustache and bleached his hair white, altering his appearance enough and changing his name to Anton Dickerson. Victor asked the mysterious figure how he knew that. Because I am Anton Dickerson, the ghostly figure said, pulling back his hood to reveal the white-haired man, formerly Andrew Darwood, the man who murdered himself. And with that, the fireplace roared and flames swallowed the ghost, thus ending this tale from Kane's True Case Files. The Man Who Murdered Himself is written by Marv Wolfman, with art by Bernie Wrightson. It originally appeared in The House of Mystery, issue 179, March 1969. Hello there, listeners. It's your old pal PJ Frightful, here to bring you a special episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. This time, we're paying tribute to the legendary artist Bernie Wrightson, who died one year ago. In addition to being one of my all-time favorite artists in the comic book field, Wrightson was truly a master of graphic horror. And that's not just me selling it. There's a series called Bernie Wrightson, Master of the Macabre. The Man Who Murdered Himself from House of Mystery 179 is the first professional comics work of Wrightson's career. Over the next three years, he produced stories for nearly all of DC's other horror anthology titles, including The House of Secrets, Unexpected, and The Witching Hour as well as some of the most memorable and eye-catching covers to appear outside of Warren's horror magazines, Creepy and Eerie. In 1971, Wrightson co-created Swamp Thing with writer Len Wein for a story in House of Secrets 92. A year later, Wrightson and Wein would revisit the character in his own ongoing series. 
In the late 70s and early 80s, he worked on stories published by Marvel, Pacific, and Eclipse Comics. In the mid-80s, he returned to DC for the four-issue miniseries called The Weird, and followed that with another miniseries, Batman The Cult. Outside of his comic book work, Bernie Wrightson contributed illustrations to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as well as the Stephen King novels The Stand and Cycle of the Werewolf. Tonight, we honor Bernie Wrightson's contribution to horror in three of his best works. Join Ryan Daly and three all-new guests as they review The Secret of the Egyptian Cat from House of Mystery 186, All in the Family from House of Mystery 204, and The Patchwork Man from Swamp Thing number 3. Come along with them and feel the burn. <laughs> oh, that was lame. Sorry. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me for the first time on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, or actually any of my shows, is Mr. Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixels podcast. How are you, Sean? Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. I, I guess persistence pays off. Like I, This is the <laughs> first time, but I, I think I've sent like subtle, passive-aggressive missives to you for a while, and I'm like, hey, Ryan, you need a guest? Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. <laughs> I had a so baby seven months ago. I don't do subtle. You've got to like, hit me in the head with a brick to get my attention. My daughter is eight, and I am just now experiencing regular sleep cycles again, so I totally get it. Totally feel your pain, man. Oh, yeah. Um, well, as I told you when we first started discussing what would be this session, you and Dr. G, and now I'm happy to say my protege, Greg Arujo, you guys have been absolutely crushing it with Secret Wars and Beyond episodes. No joke, it's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and that was my primary reason for asking you to be on this episode. But for other listeners share kind of what is your experience first with horror comics or the horror genre in general so my first experience was way too early i have uh, two older sisters and they're seven and six years older than me and when i was about five years old they wanted to go see a movie and my mom was like you know okay that's cool you can go but you need to take your little brother with you <laughs> and they were like uh okay like, I don't know this because I'm five years old, but they have a plan. Like, they were going to sneak into Friday the 13th. <laughs> and they, and, and you know, any other siblings, this would ruin their plan, right? Like, any other well meaning, like, good natured human beings would be like, oh, we're not <laughs> going to take the impressionable five year old into this horror movie with us. But my beloved sisters were like, we're going to this movie. You're not telling mom. And I'm like, is it scary? And they go, well, it's not that scary. And I'm like, well, what do I do if I'm scared? They're like, just we'll cover your eyes. We go in to see this horror show. And I don't know if you remember the original Friday the 13th, but it is terrifying. I mean, <laughs> like I was I was literally I can still see it's like one of my first memories. I still can see myself sitting in the like oversized theater chair, like crouched into like the, the, the Homer Simpson fetal position, covering my eyes the entire time, <laughs> grabbing my sister's hands and putting them over my ears. And still like, like the only thing more terrifying than Jason Voorhees is Jason Voorhees through your fingers over your <laughs> eyes with like all the music coming through. So they they take me to this movie and then we go back home 
And they're like, you don't tell mom, you don't tell mom, you don't tell mom. So of course, like that night, my mom, you know, puts me to bed and I wake up in the middle of the night and I go running into her room and I, and she's like, why are you scared suddenly? And I tell her, cause you know, I'm five and it's the middle of the night. <laughs> she wakes my sisters up and I, I, I kid you not. And I love this about my mother. She is like, you took him to a horror movie. You are going to raise him through this. And they had to accompany me anytime I was scared. And I, I remember it being a protracted amount of time. They had to like sit outside the bathroom when I showered. Anytime I went to like a, a room that was dark, they had to run in front of me and turn the light on. And of course, even at five, like I totally took advantage of this. But that was my first like dipping into the horror genre. And it, and it, it scarred me. Like, I mean, it actually explains a lot about my life and the choices I've made, but it totally screwed me up. And, and like to this day, I love my sisters, but like I'll, I'll look at them some days and be like, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'll call one of my sisters up and she's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, why the hell did you take me to Friday the 13th when I was five? She's like, again, again, she's like the years of therapy didn't like you didn't work through this already. So so that was kind of my first dip. And then, you know, I just. I probably like you, like, like all comic collectors, you know, I was just an avid reader as a kid. So I got my hands on it at one point by Stephen King. And I loved that book. And then, um, but I I was a latecomer to to horror comics. Like I know you've done a bunch of great episodes on some seventies horror books and and even the book we're going to cover today. And I was not drawn to that stuff as a kid. I was like four color superhero. Here we go. And so my first real experience with horror books was, um, Jamie Delano's Hellblazer, and Neil yeah. Gaiman's Sandman, and yeah. and then it's probably true for a lot of us. Oh, that's, that's an amazing story about Friday the Thirteenth. It's, it's, yeah, I'm glad my pain is funny. It is, it's awful. It's really like it was. I, again, like I still have such vivid memories of it, and it'll pop up. It'll pop up like I'll hear the like you know music from Friday the Thirteenth or something, and I will flash right back to that movie theater. Like I, I don't. I mean, if, if I were an '80s movie of the week trope. I would like sneak into movie theaters and murder people or something, but I like somehow I, I powered through my my psychosis and have turned out like a reasonably well adjusted adult. <laughs> reasonably, maybe a strong word, but I'm okay. <laughs> you remind me, I haven't thought about this in forever, but um, when I was really little, when the music video came out from Michael Jackson's Thriller, and when MTV would show the full movie version that included the prologue with Michael mm-hmm. Jackson turning into the Wolfman. And how much that terrified me as a little kid. And my older brother would be watching MTV with control of the remote control would always like like make me come like call me into the room and I would see <laughs> that on TV and I would scream and run out of the room and my mom would yell at him and he'd be like, Okay, okay, I changed I changed the channel. He would turn on like a cartoon or the news or something like that. And he would like usher me and say, Yeah, you could come in, you can come back in. It's fine, it's fine. Look, it's not that and I would like creep around the corner until I could see the TV <laughs> and then I would kind of like get in there and sit down and as soon as my butt touched the floor or touched the couch or something, he would click he would turn on the, the channel or something like that. And it would go back to Michael Jackson as the werewolf and I would run away screaming. It was basically like like Charlie Brown and Lucy just like like just luring me back. Every time he was like, No, I swear I'm not gonna turn it back onto the onto the thriller video. I'm not gonna do that. And every time I fell for it. See, I'm the youngest of three, so I never got the joy of torturing a younger sibling, <laughs> yeah. which is I think why I became a teacher, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah so I could really, really take that <laughs> take that feeling out on my children, on my, my students. Uh, no, it's it's messed up. I, I remember when that video came out and I w- watched it and I was I, same thing. I was like scared. And Vincent Price was like oddly terrifying, even though, you know, <laughs> later on you're like, oh, he's super campy. And I remember my sister saying to me, same thing. I walk in and, I, you know, the, the video's on and I'm like, ah, and I kind of run out. And she's like, dude, we took you to Friday the 13th. You can handle Thriller. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> so I, was, I was OK. So 
Where specifically does your history with Bernie Wrightson begin? How familiar were you with him? So I came to Wrightson kind of late. Um, probably, again, like many of our listeners, we're all sort of men of a certain age. And uh, my first real experience with him was Batman the Cult. And I read that mini, and then I read The Weird by Jim Starlin, and I was really into his work. I was really fascinated by it. And so by this point in my collecting career, I I had kind of weaned myself off of spinner racks, and I had actually found a a comic book store within walking distance to my house. And I talked to the, like, super creepy yellow-nailed guy behind the counter who I think worked at every comic book store in the 80s. And he was like, oh, yeah, if you like that art, that's cool. You should check out, you know, Swamp Thing, and you should check out. And so he started pointing me to all of these back issues, which I, I remember really fondly and now just think it was a chance for him to sell me books. But I, I went and checked them out and I just fell in love with his line work. And I, I was amazed by his ability to depict like like just to, to craft nightmare, like to depict the stuff of nightmares. And and so I came to him through a lens of superheroes and then delved into the the horror background and then i discovered his illustrated frankenstein and it was it was over from there i mean he is he, i i look at those works and, and we'll you know talk about this a little later in the episode but i look at those those drawings and i'm like well these these should be in like moma like they should be in a museum and this is museum quality art and you know so so for me he's like bill sinkovich well actually kind of like george perez but that's just my own bias but he's like bill sinkovich for me he's one of those artists who you're like He's a fine artist who happens to draw comics, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But yeah, so I came I came at it from a comic book, from a superhero lens. But I eventually backfilled a lot of that horror stuff, and and just you know have been a huge fan ever since. I've actually been trying to figure this out, and I cannot square the the, the circle of my own timeline, my own memory, because chronologically, I should have encountered him in the cult first, because I think I read that, but for the life of me, I think I want to say my first encounter with him was his illustrations in the Stephen King novelette, Cycle of the Werewolf. Oh, um, yeah. Which I, I found it at um, the, the school library, of all places, like in, <laughs> in junior high, maybe? It was? I, I don't remember. I can't think of it. But that was like the first time I really noticed it, and it blew me away. And um, then I'd completely forgotten about that, too, until relatively recently, because there's another podcast that I listen to called The Losers Club, and it's a Stephen King-based podcast, and they basically do like a, like a book club, uh, and they go oh, through cool. his works chronologically. They start – the first episode was about Carrie, his first book, and they've gone – every episode, they go through a different one of his books, and they just got to Cycle of the Werewolf. Uh, and I was like, man, I forgot how much like – the the visuals in that and he also did visual illustrations for the stand um and then mm-hmm. yeah the the illustrated frank the uh, frankenstein i've got a giant hardcover tome of that upstairs and and i love that so much and uh, and i always kind of thought about those more than i thought about his his comic book work even with something like batman the cult and i love batman um but it really wasn't until I met him at Boston Comic-Con shortly before his death, just a few months, where I was like, I want to get something signed, and I picked up a, a Swamp Thing of his, and then I really started diving into it, and that's kind of what made him one of my favorite comic book artists, just looking and, and partially inspired this whole podcast. It was a lot of it based on just looking at some of his old stuff in these House of Mystery, House of Secrets books. Um, it just made me want to talk about these, so I, I definitely think without him, without Bernie Wrightson, I don't think I would have started this podcast at all. I don't think I, there would have been the the spark that kind of like jump started this idea. 
Yeah, he's definitely one of the pillars of not just the comics community, but really that horror genre. I mean, he is the, you know, he's the the person I think of first mm-hmm. when I think of like, you know, if I if I could, you know, staff my platonic horror book, <laughs> you know, Bernie writes it like Bernie Wrightson is the artist, right? Like it doesn't, I mean, you know, and and, and writer gets a little trickier because you could, you know, it depends on the kind of horror you like, you know, yeah. more game in or, yeah. um, you know, there's a, there's that whole range in there, but yeah, he's he's. Again, I just I always think of him as an again like that fine artist who happened to do comics and you know and I now that I really think about it probably the first place chronologically I encountered him is the heavy metal movie because you know that whole Captain Stern segment oh yeah is, I didn't even think about it yeah it's based on his work and so I I didn't know that at the time I actually didn't find that out till much later oh, and yeah. you know it's it's also I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I've seen and liked that movie. I feel like I feel like admitting that means like I drive a van with a Pegasus painted on the side, but I don't know. Probably half of half the people listening to this show are like, yeah, dude, I have that van. Like I'm good. <laughs> but yeah, he's amazing. I and that's I mean, when you when you reached out to me about this, I was like, you know, I I, I actually had kind of forgotten how big a fan of, of his I was because I think of him again primarily in that Frankenstein genre mm-hmm. and I don't own a ton of his comics. I mean, like I said, I have the the, the 80s stuff, but I, I've gone and backfilled some things. But, you know, it's expensive to go back and try to get some of those early rights and works. Yeah. And so I, I it took me a second to really realize how much of his his work I have and how much of it I've you know just kind of admired over the years. So, so yeah, I'm psyched. I'm, I mean, I'm psyched you started the podcast because it's a ton of fun, but I'm especially happy to be on this episode. All right. Well, folks, Sean and I are going to review one of my favorite Bernie Wrightson stories, a little tale called The Secret of the Egyptian Cat, originally published in House of Mystery 186, cover dated May-June 1970. It's written by Robert Kaniger and edited by Joe Orlando. If you want to read along, this story has been reprinted in the House of Mystery Treasury Edition, that's Limited Collector's Edition C23, and yes, Rob Kelly and I did talk about this story on Treasury Cast last Halloween. The story also appears in Showcase Presents House of Mystery Volume 1, the Masterwork series of Great Comic Book Artists Number 3, which spotlights Bernie Wrightson, and Welcome Back to the House of Mystery Number 1, which is available on Comixology. The story begins with Kane walking outside the House of Mystery, complaining that the incessant meowing of a cat belonging to one of his boarders, a Mr. Canassos, is keeping him awake. The cat in question walks by him on one of its regular trips to the woods, when suddenly, before Kane's astonished eyes, it transforms into a beautiful Egyptian woman named Isha. Isha tells her story that she was a priestess to the cat god Nuta in ancient Egypt. One day, she was approached by Canassos, a wandering sorcerer, who found her in the temple of Nuta and went all... Well, at this point, you can insert whatever powerful man accused in the last couple of months of a sexual assault that you prefer. The temple guards tried to save Isha, but Canassos used magic potions to thwart them. Then he used another potion to turn Isha into a beautiful white cat. From there, Knassos and his pet-slash-captive Isha traveled the world for thousands of years until eventually visiting the House of Mystery. At night, Isha would slip out of the house and wander the grounds, where she met other cats. One of the wild cats, Rana, was protective of Isha, but when their friendship was discovered by Knassos, the sorcerer left a saucer of poisoned milk out for Rana. The murder of her feline friend spurred Isha to act— when Canassos passed out, she rummaged through his potions until she finally found the elixir that would reverse her transformation. 
Once more in her beautiful human form, Isha goes further and douses her captor with one of his own potions. Canassos wakes up in the body of a rat, just in time for Isha to introduce him to the other wild cats of the forest that she had befriended. With Isha's problem finally resolved, Kane is at last able to shut his eyes and catch a catnap. All right, the secret of the Egyptian cat. Sean, what did you think? So I love this story, and, and it's funny because, you know, so far we've talked about it being drawn by Bernie Wrightson, but, man, this was written by Robert Kaniger. Uh-huh. Like, I it, – it's – he Robert Kaniger is, like, the only guy who can write – like, could walk into, like, the, the famous comic creator's party and go right up to Stan Lee and be like, yeah, FF's great. Yeah, you know, Avengers are great. I've got Black Canary. I've got Sergeant Rock. I've got – like, he can – you know, he's, like, the only one who can go sort of toe-to-toe. With having created all of these amazing characters and then and then play his trump card and be like, oh, and I started the Silver Age by creating Barry Allen. Like, <laughs> you know, no big deal. Boom. Just walk out. And that surprised me because I think of Kaniger primarily as a superhero writer and especially as like a fun, super, you know, Silver Age superhero writer. I think of him as like, mm-hmm. you know, big headed Flash or, you know, those kind of really goofy, fun Silver Age stories. And this is dark. Yeah. Like this is um, yeah, this is an intense story. It's it's you know, it's brief. It's 10 pages. But it is a really interesting, especially for the time it was written and published, it's a really interesting look at male power and like the abuse of male power throughout the ages. And and, you know, like, you know, you joked about it, but it's, you know, unfortunately, it's it's as timely a story as ever. Um, It it was interesting to go back and look at it with with 2018 eyes. Interesting is probably not the right word. It was kind of sad to go back and look at it with 2018 (laughs) eyes. But the, the, the story itself is it packed a single punch. Like, this isn't a very nuanced story. There's not a lot of layer here, but what it does, it does really well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, like, when you think about modern context and, and relations between men and women and, and the movements, you can't help but see that he is dominating her physically, emotionally, like, like trapping her in, in the prison of her own body. And, and for years, for millennia, uh, and when she tries to have her own private life, he reacts and murders the, the the thing that she loves and just this sort of domination of her life um and then of course that sets up the perfect sort of revenge tale that we get uh which is which is nice well and i think it's it's interesting to me because you know canassus is a a, a one note character it's a dark note but he's one note and I, I think it's really interesting because in that scene when he you know we first meet him he we have no context he has just gone up to you know her in the temple and he's like, you are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I'm taking you. Like, it's not even a question. It's not – it is clearly something he believes he has the right to do and he's done before. And she says to him, are you a fool? Like, I'm a priestess of a goddess. Like, you, you're not even getting near me. And in my mind, that's actually what, what changes for him. I think had she not done that – I mean, no matter what, this is a dark story, right? Right. No matter, had she not done that, it was going to go a dark place. But I think when she challenges his power – and especially when she challenges his power in the name of a female god, he really reacts and is like, oh, I'm going to show you. Not only am I more powerful than you, I'm more powerful than your your goddess. And so for me, that's where the story was really, really compelling and, and even sort of darker in its undertones was the idea that it was like, you know, here he's purely evil. Like there's no redeeming this character at all, obviously. But it's not just a simple story of you're beautiful. I'm going to sort of capture you. It's more about like I'm going to 
erase everything about you and everything that you value. I'm going to show you how powerless you are, how powerless your goddess is. And then I'm going to add an extra layer of humiliation, mm. you know, by making you this like servile, domesticated animal. And it, it, it's really like, again, like Kaniger, and, and I don't know if you know much about him. Well, what am I saying? Like he created Black Canary. Of course, you know a lot about him. Um, he, you know, he's emotionally, he's not the most emotionally stable creator in the history of comics. Like there are a number of stories about Kaniger being really volatile. And, and a lot of people felt like he was sort of plagued by these emotional demons, which, you know, in, in some way probably fueled his creativity. And this story is is so dark and it's such an interesting contrast like this is the guy that created barry allen you know like this is the guy who wrote showcase four and here we have this really dark you know wizard who wants to domesticate this woman and then you know at the end when she gains power over him and she turns him into a rat and leaves him to his death like like there was no comics code you know moral like knowing is half the battle moment here there's no like i'm going to show you i'm a better person to take the high road it was like, oh, no, I'm going to I'm going to straight up kill you and, <laughs> and I'm not going to feel bad about it. And the reader's like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm cool with that. Like, let him die. So I, it was just really I was I was surprised. I'm surprised by how much punch it packs, especially, again, just given its time and its creative team. It's pretty amazing. Well, that was one of the glorious things about the horror comics in that convention is they didn't have to take the high road. They were encouraged, in fact, to take the low road to make their revenge, to make the comeuppance as as gruesome as possible in some cases. And it's nice because it kind of satisfies that horror that horror streak in all of us, right? Like oh, the yeah. you know part of me is like, oh, you know, I, I should be better than hoping he gets turned into a rat and dies. But yeah, it's good. I'm good with that. Yeah, I don't have. I mean, you said it pretty wonderfully. I don't. I don't really have much more to say about the story and the narrative that Kaniger is presenting. Um, there are a few bits of art that I really want to spotlight, um, including a number of things like Bernie Wrightson. I I don't think is known for drawing. I mean, when you think about all the things that he does draw, I don't think the idea of a of a sexy or voluptuous woman would readily like jump jump to your mind as mm-hmm. one of the things he's known for. I think he really draws the hell out of Isha in some of these panels. I I think she looks good. She's curvy. Um, she she's beautiful. She has the uh, the exotic look that she needs to. Um, so when we see her in her human form, that kind of surprised me because that wasn't something I would readily associate with Wrightson's work. But I was like, yeah, he makes her look good and he makes it kind of believable that uh, Canassos would would see her and want to possess her as much as he does. Yeah, that first double page spread, pages two and three, when she transforms from the cat back to Isha, it is such a great piece of art actually i mean it's really the transformation itself is really fascinating you know like the the posture mm-hmm. with you know she's feline and then she's sort of this wear creature yep. and then when she emerges as isha you're right like you don't normally think of him as a, a cheesecake artist and there's nothing cheesecake in in the depiction but she is a, a really powerful beautiful woman in fact when i looked at this double page spread i was like man this looks like it was drawn by gene cologne like this looks like it's out of you know yeah. tomb of dracula yeah Actually, when you were talking about, you know, like, who would you pick for your artists for, for a horror book, my go-to and two of my favorite artists are Bernie Wrightson and Gene Colan, and just like those those guys who are known. I mean, and, and Colan definitely did a lot more superhero comics throughout his career, but I always go back to his run on Tomb of Dracula, and I think of him as Marvel's horror artist. Um, and both of them, I think, known for heavy use of inks and, and blacks on the page. 
Oh yeah, yeah. When Gene Colan, when he inks something, when he draws something, it looks like it was inked in mud. Like it's just <laughs> heavy and dark, and which I love. I mean, and especially on a book I think like he King started with a black page and just colored, like drew white <laughs> over top of it. Like Batman the Animated yeah, Series. Yeah, just like Batman the, how they did it. Yeah. <laughs> So. Yeah, he um, his work. It's funny because when I when I look at his work uh, again on horror books, I loved it. But like every once in a while, he'd fill in on like a you know I don't know random issue of like Iron Man or the Avenger. <laughs> Actually, he did a long run of Iron Man, but he'd fill in on some nor- some superhero book, and I was like, or like Firestorm, and I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> like this right. this doesn't work. Like no, sorry, yeah, not not a good fit. Uh, speaking of the two page spread on pages two and three, when we see the transformation. I never noticed it until I was rereading the story for this uh, for this recording. Like, it, it's a gorgeous sort of transitional moment, but I was kind of like thinking, like, it doesn't actually make sense within the narrative of this story, this moment where Cain witnesses this transformation. It really only kind of works symbolically to see it, because otherwise, when would that take place? Like, does she... Like, it would, it would have to be where she transforms herself back into a human or, or she yeah she takes the potion transforms herself then goes back to poison Canassus and turn him into a rat otherwise it suggests that she turned him into a rat so that he died turned herself back into a cat so that she could go out yeah. and reveal herself to Cain and tell the story and I just started thinking I was like you know it's a lot easier to just assume this is a symbolic transformation for these splash pages that isn't part of the story yeah, I was like, I had to kind of weigh that too. I was like, framing device or yeah, yeah. super cool Ben Grimm moment where she's like, oh, I turn into a cat and I can turn back. And I was like, oh, that's cool too. So I kind of infused it with a little like four color world too, where I'm like, she's now, you know, Isha the cat guy. You know, like, I was like, okay, there's her superhero into name. anybody's stories. Yeah. And there you go. Yeah, she has very limited use on the super teams. You know, she really can just, she can infiltrate the homes of old women. But other than, you know, but when you need that, like she is there, like she is your go to person. Look for her cameo in Justice League Dark. <laughs> <laughs> she would fit perfectly. Yeah, the the art and there's a, there are a few other moments that you know really capture. I think you know Wrightson's ability to to depict emotion in particular. And I I look at page the page where um, Canossus actually kidnaps her. You know where she's she's like oh you fool you return to the temple my guards are going to kill you and he you know poisons them and he and he then he chloroforms her and that panel where he has his hand over her mouth. The way Wrightson draws her eyes, I mean, it's just – it's a small panel and he doesn't have a lot of room to work. But her eyes, they convey terror, which you would expect. But it's an – I don't know. The, and I may be just reading into it because of the narrative. But it's the kind of terror where it's both fear of what's going to happen to you, but it's also shock that it's happening to you. Yeah. Like I think she's – it's this like this, this pairing of like I can't believe this is happening to me and then also like I can't believe this is happening to me. You know, I'm this priestess and – why is my goddess not protecting me? And Wrightson does this really cool thing where she, her eyes are stark and wide open. And Canossus's one eye is peering over to the side of her because of the way he's standing. And it, it creates this really interesting kind of juxtaposition of him being in the position of power, her being in the position of sort of shock and, right. and you know, subservience. And I, I, that to me is a really haunting panel. And, and it's something that I think only Wrightson could pull off. It is, and we're kind of dancing around the word, but this, it's a rape moment. It's it's a woman yeah. it's a woman realizing this is what's about to happen to her, and the shock that it that it could happen to her. And you're right, and but yeah, I mean, it's we're obviously getting a 
a symbol, a, a metaphorical um, analogy for this, but that's exactly what is happening. And it's it, yeah, her, the the look of terror in her eyes. It's it's it is haunting when you look at that. And then, what are your thoughts on the the panel below? Because that's the fir- that's the reverse of the transformation we saw before. This is now human to cat. Mm-hmm. And and I just I love it. I was I wanted to hear what you had to say about that because I think it's such a cool panel that he you know he crams into such a small space. Yeah, I mean it's it's sort of like um like a model sheet in different stages of just like <laughs> of the human anatomy of like these different poses, the way she kind of changes position, changes height, changes like the cock to her hips and everything like that as she sort of you know devolves from human to cat over the stage. Like and and the fact that he took the time to draw her in like twenty different positions or sixteen different you know forms. However much it is, you know, he he really went through the whole the whole transformation. It's it's pretty strong. Yeah, I feel like George Perez and, and Keith Giffen would look at that panel and be like, "Dude, that's a lot for one panel." Like he crams, <laughs> yeah. he crams a lot. And I love, and you pointed this out. I love the fact that it's not a smooth transition. Like mm-hmm. she's hunched over and then standing. She's you know kind of uh, in in these bizarre positions of different heights. And I like that a lot because what it conveys through the art is like this is not a smooth, easy transition. Like this is the dehumanization, you know, metaphorically but also physically of this character. And it reminded me a lot and, you know, I I, I know he's heavily influenced by Wrights and it reminded me a lot of Bill Sinkovich Mm -hmm. when he would draw Rain Sinclair in his new Mutants run. Yeah, yeah, I see that too. Yeah, because, you know, prior to Sinkovich coming on that book, it was Bob McCloud, and that was a much sweeter – and I love Bob McCloud, but it was like a much sweeter sort of, I'm a girl, I'm a wolf, I'm a girl, I'm a wolf. And Sinkovich comes along, and he's like, no, I'm a horrific were person who could, like, you know, clow at your innards if I wanted to, and also I'm Scottish. And it was like <laughs> this – you know, the way he would depict her, like, hunched over just made her so much more powerful. And and I love that about this this panel. It's just such a – the transformation panels are phenomenal. It's a body horror. Obviously, it's it's not as extreme. But like when you start making those comparisons, I started thinking about the the change in an American werewolf in London. Um, Me too. It, 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 kind of like going to that place, and it, like when you think of when you think of a transformation that is that painful, that causes like the arched back, when you just when you feel the muscles and the bones breaking and separating and everything like that. Now this is nowhere near that exaggerated you don't get the sense of the screaming but it is your humanity going away being like stripped away as as this change is befalling and it's not comfortable it's not sudden it takes time and it's it's painful so yeah yeah uh page nine uh has some of my favorite panels it's the two panels right in the middle where isha as the cat is is uncorking the potion with her with her mouth and then dumping <laughs> it onto the sheets. Um, I just I just love that look. I love the way he draws her eyes. They're pupilless eyes. It's just yellow, and you just get the sense of evil and hatred. And she barely looks like a cat at all in that last panel. It's, there, there's just something so it's it's feral, but not in a wild way, which I guess is what feral means. So that doesn't really make sense. It, there's just something kind of like monstrous about it but it's it's not like a cackling she's not like hissing or drooling there's just like a it's it's predatory it's just a predatory look it's a it's a hunter who knows exactly what she wants and it's yeah it's amazing it's, it's the I... reversal of what we see when he when Kanasas grabs her on the on the previous page 
Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's amazing because I think in that panel, and I'm glad you pointed that out because that was one of my favorite panels in the story as well. I think Wrightson captures the look that all cats give humans when we're not paying attention. <laughs> like I think I think it is. I think it's the look, the cat like, oh, I'm going to kill you when you're asleep one day. Oh, hey, meow, meow. Like, like it's this whole like <laughs> – little change thing that I think seriously all cats have going on but it's it's such a contrast it's such a great panel because it's such a contrast to the page where she actually first turns and you know the the page before we get the panel at the bottom of her transformation and then that next page Knossos is holding her up and she looks you know, she, as a cat she looks all distressed and it's like right out of the Aristocats like yeah. it might as well be a, a, a you know animation cell from Disney you know when she's like oh I'm about to break into a song and it's just really you know it's it's his ability to depict facial expressions, especially in animals, like I am not an artist, but I know most artists say like, you know, kids, animals, hands, like those are the hardest things to draw. And it's it's unbelievable his ability to convey emotion because, I mean, I don't know if you would know this better than I would, but isn't this only like his second or third public? I mean, he was only published for the first time in House of Mystery, what, like seven issues earlier? Yeah, he this I want to say this is close to his tenth work. Um but that might include covers too. So, <sighs> yeah, because this is this is House of Mystery one eighty six, and his first published work is House of Mystery one seventy nine. Yeah, you know, so that was only a year. It gets a bi monthly book, so it was only like a year and a half earlier. And and I, I'm always astounded. It, it it kind of and I know I'm gonna probably get some groans, you know, through the the radio here. But it reminds me of like Todd McFarlane. Like Todd McFarlane was one of those guys who came out of the canon like almost fully formed. You know, like he, you know, he really shot out, I think, pretty great. And I know some people will bag on it. I love his Infinity Inc. run. And I, you know, I really liked what he was doing with panel borders and, and with, you know, character designs. And Wrightson's kind of the same way. It's like, man, he's really young in his artistic career. And he is drawing facial expressions on animals and humans that are conveying so much more than what might have been in the script. It's 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 astounding. Yeah, I, I just looked up on, really quick on Mike's Amazing World. This was his 11th published work. Um, but in just that short span of time, I mean, he was doubling up a few months. Most of them were short stories. And, and even like his first story in House of Mystery 179, that was a three-page story. Uh, some of these were like really quick and everything like that. But yeah, like like his his development, his progression, he was, he was hot out of the gate. That final page, <laughs> you know, the panel where she's staring down at, at Canossus when he's a rat – I mean, the look on her face, and this is, again, this is the beauty of the horror genre, right? Like, like this is the moment when you realize as a reader, like, oh, there's no happy ending here. Like, this is not a very special episode of Blossom. Like, she is going to, he's going to die. And I loved that because that, again, he captures her, her just, it's like that look of just pure hate and revenge. And it's, you know, that's the tenor of the story. Like, it, it, it cinches it really perfectly. And that's why, I mean, we've said it, it, it's a short story. It's fairly simple, but it gets into some powerful evocative themes on on the narrative and the visual level uh which is why this is one of my favorite rights and stories and this is one that I, I i when i knew i wanted to do a rights and tribute episode i knew that i had to cover this story uh even though rob and i just talked about it a couple of months ago i knew that i wanted to do this one again for this podcast because it's it's worth talking about it and it's been repeat it's been reprinted a couple of times so i think the fans and the publishers know that this was this, there was a, a special story so when I think it's it's not just reprinted, it's actually even homaged. I mean, if you if you read uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman run, mm-hmm. issue eighteen is a dream of a thousand cats, and it's drawn by Kelly Jones, who is yeah. a direct descendant yeah. of Bernie yeah. Wrightson. And I mean, in fact, um, when Wrightson passed away, he was in the middle of a a mini a four issue series 
that he had contracted to do the work on. And Kelly Jones finished the series for him, mm-hmm. like to sort of honor his impact on him. And and Kelly Jones has talked about how that Dream of a Thousand Cats episode, uh, issue is a, a little bit of a tip of the cap to this story, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I'll have to look at that one again. I haven't, gosh, I haven't read Sandman in so long. It holds up. I have to say, I, I did a, a dive back into it a couple years ago, and I was ready to be like, okay, you know, how, how well has this aged? Is it is it going to come off as like, you know, I'm super dark and goth, and you know, look at my Peter Parker Spider Man three hair, and and I and I just didn't know, you know, how it was going to read, and then. I mean, just, you know, a few issues in, I'm like, nope, still brilliant, still totally literary, and just holds up on every level. It's amazing. Awesome. Any final thoughts about this particular story? Uh, not about this story in particular, but I do have some more thoughts on Wrightson. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're okay with me sharing a little story. That's what we're here for. So, so I, uh, I'm a teacher, and uh, I've, I'm an English teacher in particular, and I've been in the classroom for, gosh, 15-plus years at this point. And I have taught a lot of different grade levels. And so I, I in particular, though, I've, I've usually taught high school. And I used to teach Frankenstein to sophomores or freshmen, sort of depending on the on the group. And one of the things I would try to do, so I, and I know, you know, you have a background in education as well. So for those of you who are, who are listening, who aren't educators, when you teach, you try to reach multiple modalities. You know, you try to hit kids in in varying ways because they may learn in different ways. So like if you can bring in text and art and music and, you know, video and, and as many different ways as you can give them to like access the material. And it's, it's called universal design for learning. It's like how many different ways can you present the material so that every learner can access it? And so, you know, when I was teaching Frankenstein, I'm like, look, it's a short book, but it's super dense. And, you know, the, the writing is somewhat archaic because of when it was written. And, you know, it's not an easy read. And and the kids always come in with these preconceived notions of, you know, Phil Hartman, you know, fire bad. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> not really Frankenstein, even though I would show them that clip once we read the book to show them like, hey, here's what, you know, in pop culture, here's kind of where this is now. And so I would bring in when I was teaching the book, I would bring in Wrightson's drawings and I would bring in his 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 pen and ink drawings from Frankenstein. And I would show them that, you know, the illustrated version and I would make some copies of it and kind of blow it up and put it up, up around the room. And my kids just really, really like that was the hook for them. You know, they would read the book and we would talk about, you know, sort of modern versions of it and talk about, you know, science. And, you know, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And we would go into like stem cells and cloning. We do all the kind of interesting things you can do to tie it directly to modern day. But it was Wrightson's work that would hit them the most viscerally. And so I would bring these pictures and I bring these, you know, these drawings in and we would finish a segment of the book and then we would look at Wrightson's illustration and we would talk about, and we, this was kind of to promote visual literacy as well. Like we would talk about like, okay, what are you seeing? Like, what is the artist choosing to focus on? Is that what Mary Shelley focused on? Is that what you focused on as you were building your mental model of the stories you were going through and reading it? And the kids would just really try to, you know, delve into Wrightson's brain and like, why was it, why this, you know, why this particular angle? Why this much detail on the laboratory and all the bottles and, you know, everything that that's probably the most famous drawing from his Frankenstein work. And they would really get into it. And so as one of the final projects, I would have them create like a 21st century monster. Like what would what would our 21st century American Frankenstein be? And unfortunately, they got him elected. But I, you know, I asked them. <laughs> you beat me to you know, that joke. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I was telling. I was like, he's gonna, he's gonna come in on this. I know it. Um, so, I, so I would, you know, have them create this 21st century monster. And my, in particular, my super artistic kids would always say, like, hey, you know, for my visual aid, can I 
you know, not mimic rights, but can I do something in the spirit of that? I'm like, yeah, of course. And I had these amazing projects come in where these kids would get obsessed with Wrightson's work and they would, you know, try to find their own scenes to depict and they would try to model their work after his. And I had a number of kids over the years who became obsessed with him, like became Wrightson heads. I mean, they would go back and I would, t- I would point I mean, they'd come and see me and they'd be like, Hey, where do I go next? And I'm like, okay, Swamp Thing and, you know, House of Mystery and the weird and Batman. And they would go and they'd hit the library and then, you know, hit the comic book store. And, and in, in one of my weirdest but proudest moments as a teacher, and I've been teaching long enough where I have had several students come back to student teach with me. Nice. And then I have had several students become teachers themselves. And I've actually taught with them, which is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> but even better than that, like even better than that feeling of like, oh, my gosh, this you know kid has chosen this life, you know, in part because of, you know, in small part, but big part because of an effect I had. I had a kid come back and see me one year. And he's like, hey, he's like, you know, he just came back to visit. And he's like, oh, hey, do you still teach Frankenstein? And I was like, oh, no, I, you know, not currently. I'm teaching a different grade level. I'm like, but, you know, if I ever go back to that grade level, I'll teach it. And he's like, you remember the pictures you used to show us? And I go, oh, yeah, Bernie Wrightson. He's like, yeah, check this out. And he pulls up his sleeve and he has a sleeve, a tattoo sleeve. And part of that sleeve is a is one of the Wrightson drawings. It's the woman <laughs> hanging from the tree. And oh. I was like, oh, my God. God, that's amazing. I'm like, your parents must hate me. Like, this is like <laughs> awesome. And, you know, and, and I had like a lot of great moments as a teacher. And, you know, and I've had a lot of kids tell me how I've impacted them and everything. But seriously, like nothing prouder than that kid who tattooed a Bernie Wrightson drawing on his arm. Like that is like, like, like that is my crowning achievement as an educator. It was amazing. <laughs> wow, that is that is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, have to up cool. my game for this episode now. Okay. I thought a tribute podcast <laughs> would be enough, but clearly not. I, okay. Got a tattoo. My, yeah, okay. I, I've got, I was under the impression that you were getting ink for this. Like I was like, you know, Ryan, are you seriously committed? Like, come on. Like, <laughs> no, it was really cool. I mean, it was, and it, look, it was a surprise. And I, and I was also like, oh man, was that like, did I damage this kid? Like, you know, there was, there's also that moment where you're like, oh man, he got the, he got a tattoo of a woman hanging from a tree on his arm because of my class. Like, I don't know what that says about my choices in life, which of course immediately flashed me back to my sister taking me to the Friday the 13th. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I called and told them, yeah, they had not only ruined my life, but they ruined this kid's life. Um, but it's, it was a cool, it was just a cool moment. And it, it, whenever I think of rights and, and honestly, whenever I think of his Frankenstein work, which is, is really, I think the pinnacle of his career, mm-hmm. I just go right back to that. Like, like my, I just remember seeing those kids, seeing his work for the first time, and it was like, oh yeah, this is how you know he's an immortal. Like this is how you know he's one of the the you know big guns, because these kids who were coming who had you know never read a comic in their lives had no idea. And this is this is before you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe really hit. Like they just you know they they didn't know anything about comics. They were astounded by his stuff. So like. It's really cool to get to be on an episode that talks about him because, you know, not only do I love him as a fan, but I, you know, anytime you're able to to use something in your your teaching, you know, you kind of attach to it in a different way. So, I don't know. I have some pretty cool memories of him. Awesome. Awesome. That is great. Well, I am so glad that I got to talk to you about him and that I got to have you on this podcast episode. So, Sean, before you go, where else can people find you in the podcastosphere? <laughs> so um, I am part of the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, and, and I said it right, which is a real <laughs> victory for me, because on my last episode that I recorded, I said Pulp to Pickle. I said, like, <laughs> Pickle Pulksel. I, like, I, I screwed it up about five different times, and my co-host, Dr. G, was, was you know has not let me live it down. But we're on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network. Um, we have quite a few shows. We have I co-host Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars and Beyond with Greg Arujo. 
We cover um, we covered volume one of, of Secret Wars, and we're now moving into the beautiful gem that is Secret Wars volume two. <laughs> we are we are treading where even Jim Shooter would not tread again. Um, Dr. G and I have a show called Welcome to Astro City, which is an indexing show of Kurt, Kurt Busiek's Astro City. Uh, the, on the network, we have a Motu cast, which is a Masters of the Universe cast. And we have a Dial G for Gamer, which is a, a show about superhero role playing games. So, um, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sean42AZ. It's S E A N42AZ, which I know is not super original, but, you know, that's what you, <laughs> that's where I'm at. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where everybody can find me. And I just, you know, I want to say thanks again, man. This show, I love this show. And, and, you know, you had me at Secret Origins. Like, I, you know, like that was, <laughs> that was a tour de force. I still can't believe, like, I, when you finished that, and I listened to that last episode. Like I swear to God, I stood up and applauded, and I was like, you know, he'll never know I did this, but that was a that was a feat, and so so good on you, man. That was great. I don't think I came out of my bedroom for like three days after that. I'm surprised I'm still walking. But... <laughs> well, Sean, one more time, thank you very much for being on this episode, uh, folks. We are going to bid a farewell to Sean uh, and take a little promo break while I. I'm going to look for some henna and see if I can get a tattoo of a swamp <laughs> thing with a henna. So it doesn't. Uh, when we return, another new guest and another horrific story. Don't go away. In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2. Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. We're back, and I am joined by yet another fresh voice making his debut on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You might know him best from the listener feedback sections, as he is a frequent commenter on the Fire & Water Network. Ladies and gents, please welcome Mr. Jimmy McGlinchey to the show. What's up, Jimmy? Hi, Ryan. Thanks very much for having me. Long-time listener, first-time podcast <laughs> contributor, so um, I'm glad to, glad, glad to be on your show. Thank you very much. This takes me back to the good old days of the Secret Origins podcast, when I was welcoming a lot of new guests and, and bringing yeah. a lot of new voices to the show. This is always fun to do, so... Uh, no, actually, I, I really should be thanking you, um, and I was mentioning it a little bit beforehand, but Jimmy, for those of you who don't know, lives in Ireland. My wife and I traveled to Dublin, not this past December, but back uh, December 2016, and while we were there, you know, I was tweeting something, let everybody know that I was in Dublin, Jimmy was good enough to recommend a few comic book stores that were in the area that were all within walking distance of the place that we were staying at, um, which was a great. And by the way, if anybody ever gets the chance to go to Dublin, I had a great time. Uh, we stayed at the Temple Bar region just around Trinity College and Christ Church. <laughs> we, we had found out only a, you know, a few weeks earlier that my wife was pregnant, so we didn't, 
We didn't do as much drinking, or really all that much <laughs> at all, but it was great. And at one of the comic book stores that Jimmy mentioned, um, I got a copy of Justice League of America number 75, which is the first one with Black Canary as an official member of the Justice League. Uh, and it's the first issue where Green Arrow shows up in his new Neil Adams-inspired, uh, his new look, so... That's a good issue that's near and dear to my heart, and I finally got an original copy of that at, in Dublin while I was there. So thanks for that. Uh, no worries at all, Ryan. I'm, I was just glad to be able to steer you to right. Uh, as I, I used to work in Dublin uh, before, so I sort of knew where to, I, I managed to scroll out where the, where the comic stores were in the area. <laughs> so I was, able to, I, was, I was glad I was able to point you in the right direction. No, I, I do appreciate that. But um, all right, moving on to the subject that we are here for. You're going to get the same question that every guest on this podcast gets. What is your experience with the horror genre and, in particular, with horror comics? Well, I suppose, uh, in general, I starting off, I guess I was... Um as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm based in Ireland, so uh, and around the 80s, I started getting into sort of comics, but as I was trying to get comics, uh, the, the American original comics was very hard. But luckily in the news, news agents, there would be UK reprints of um, various comics. So, for example, they would have a Batman Monthly, which would give a, a good spread of the sort of the Batman titles from the early 80s. And then around that time, obviously, the Alan Grant, John Wagner, Norm Brayfogle run was coming on. So that came in. And then they had a Superman Monthly, which also included the JLI, which is where I was first introduced to the JLI. Mm. And also in that genre, they actually set out to sort of um, develop that and they developed a, a comic which was called Shockwave. Hmm. And I suppose the first few comics, this was supposed to be sort of more mature readers, so the first few eps- the first few issues of it had uh, started reprinting the Black Orchid okay. run by Neil Gaiman and David McKean and then Animal Man by Grant Morrison and then one of the first comics that was in that run was a Hellblazer issue by mm-hmm. Grant Morrison and David Lloyd. And that scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me. <laughs> it was an absolutely thriller of a, of a comic. And um, actually, what I found out later was that one of the editors of those British reprints was our own Martin Gray. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, As you were describing, yeah, I was so. kind of thinking, I was like, I, he worked on some of these. Yes, he did. Yes, so it was it was a it was a it was a pleasant surprise to realize that uh, one of the persons who you know like that uh, that mm-hmm. I that I talked to on the on the message boards was one of the persons who got me into comics in the first place, nice. and then and then finally I suppose later on uh, we, I was finally able to get a situation where there was a comic shop finally opened up in Cork and I was able to sort of get comics and DC was my sort of main run and then. I sort of started off with the ones that I was familiar with most, obviously, like Superman, Batman, JLI. And then going on from that, it was spread on into the further DC universe. And then I got into the likes of Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. getting back the back issues of the Alan Moore run and getting um, and getting items like that. And then going back and getting the old Showcase Presents. And I got the Showcase Presents of the Phantom Stranger yeah. and uh, the Spectre. So, you know, like from that, I sort of got a good, um, I suppose, background into the whole horror genre. Hmm. Very cool. so, I, li- I like yeah. the name Shockwave as a, it sounds like sort of a, a precursor of Vertigo or something sort of like that's yeah, what, it was that was the titles it was, that they were collecting. 
it was interesting actually because they were they were they were advertising before and the first and it was but it was advertised under the title of Shadows, hmm. which I suppose is another good name for that coverage. But um, unfortunately, that run only lasted about um, I think it was only four or six issues, and then it it just disappeared without a trace. And trying to find it in the news, you're you're sort of searching the newsstands every 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 week trying to see is the, is this is it come out yet and then yet to sort of oh it's gone it's gone by the wayside <laughs> i'll have to ask martin if he knows anything about that did you have much familiarity with bernie wrightson and his artwork whether it was in comics or other forms well i suppose um going back to that um those those monthlies one of the first comics that i w- remember reading in the batman monthly was the night of the bat which mm. was a reprint of the swamp thing six which which was uh, Swamp Thing in Gotham City, yep, yep. and uh, just um, I just loved the way that he portrayed, you know, like the you had this horror monster in the Swamp Thing, and he was and you had the Batman, and he and he drew both of them so so brilliantly, and then I suppose the other two main ones that I remember Bernie Wrightson from were actually more superhero related ones, which was uh, which was two books that he did with Jim Starlin. First was Batman the Cult, yep. mm-hmm. which is um, it, it was a gritty Batman story, but it had those horror elements. Mm-hmm. Like I remember the, the way that scene that he did, where Batman was coming back into the city after Deacon Black Deacon Blackfire had um, basically taken over the city, and all those who who went against Deacon Blackfire, you had this row of cadavers just hanging from the lampposts, and it was just uh, just a, a, an amazing visual that he had. And then the other one book that he did with Jim Starland was The Weird, yeah. which had the Superman and JLI in it. And again, it sh- it showed Bernie Wrightson's ability, you know, like he had even doing those fantastical ones, like he was able to do sort of like a, a weird creature like The Weird. And he was able to mix in with the with having Guy Gardner and Blue Beetle in it as well. So, you know, like they're I suppose they're the. The main ones that I that I associate Bernie Wrightson with. So, um, just going on to this story, it was it was great to sort of see him more in his sort of natural, um, I suppose, natural genre being <laughs> horror. Yeah. All right. And the story that we are covering is called All in the Family. It originally appeared in House of Mystery two hundred and four, cover dated July nineteen seventy two. This story has been reprinted in Showcase Presents The House of Mystery, Volume 2, and DC Blue Ribbon Digest 24, which is The House of Mystery Digest. Jimmy, would you do us the honors, please, and tell us about All in the Family? It would be my pleasure, Ryan. The story begins with a not-so-happy couple, Fred and Mary, having their car stuck in the swamp during a drive during the evening. Mary angrily berates Fred for causing their car troubles and asks what they should do now. Being an age before the advent of mobile phones, Fred decided it was best to search for a house with a phone. However, it took them nearly an hour to find the Everett House, a crumbling old manor. This seemed like the answer to their problems, but as they approached the door knocker, shaped in the form of what looked like a dead boar, Mary froze and excitedly said it was the same one that she saw in a recent nightmare. Fred seemed disinterested to hear the story again, but Mary recounted it, remembering that she had been lost in this very swamp and had spent hours trying to make it to safety. Instead, she had come upon onto this very house and was greeted by what she called a pair of sideshow freaks 
right of those stupid old horror movies Fred collected. A gangly tall man with a sunken-in face and huge hands and an old withered-looking crone. The woman beckoned her in, and as if she was hypnotized, Mary crossed the threshold. The couple stared at the frightened Mary, and then, after the old woman started to cackle, the man grabbed Mary and threw her into a nearby darkened room. As the door closed behind her, all Mary could sense was the smell of death. And then she saw it, a mass of what looked like cranberry jelly with tentacles and eyes. It slithered across the floor to Mary, gurgling and oozing as it did so. It was at this point that Mary had woken from her nightmare. She asked Fred if this meant something, but Fred just pointed out that it proved what he thought all along, that Mary was nuts. Mary scoffed that Fred was one to talk, being such a fan of the horror movies, and went to knock on the door. But as the door opened with an almighty creak, the bickering couple forgot their quarrel and clasped each other and wondered if Mary's dream could be real. The door opened and stood before him was not the weird couple of Mary's dream, but a beautiful young woman with silver hair, Gloria, who asked if she could help them. Fred asked if he could use her phone, and Gloria replied that she had no phone, but she was about to have dinner, and Fred and Mary were welcome to join her. Mary's eyes widened as she looked at the beautiful feast in front of them, and they settled in to eat. The good food and conversation loosened Mary's tongue, and she told their host of her nightmare. Gloria smiled and said that Mary had no reason to be frightened of her, but that the couple in Mary's dream did remind her of her own parents. Mary gasped and asked if the woman was an only child. And the woman paused, stating no, that she had a brother. At that, the oozing, gurgling sound of something dragging its gelatinous mass over rough floors, the horrible sound from Mary's nightmare was real. She leapt from her chair and turned around, coming face to face with the horror that she had thought was a dream. Gloria was not fazed by the new arrival, referring to it as Uki, and chiding it for being late to dinner. Uki decided to catch up on his meal, though, and began to envelop Mary into his cavernous mouth. Fred was also surprisingly unfazed by the sudden devouring of his partner, having eyes only for the beautiful Gloria. Both Gloria and Fred ignored the frantic pleadings of Mary as Uki dragged her to the other room. Fred indeed had said goodbye to Mary in his own mind as his path was clear. It was just him and Gloria, now and forever. He thanked Glo Gloria for the meal and said that he would go back to the car to deal with it, but he would be right back. Gloria smiled and told him to hurry, as she would have a nice surprise for him. Fred pushed the car into the swamp where it started to sink. No trace would be left of it now, just as Fred planned. He spotted a lily and knew that Gloria would love it. He ran back to the house, anxious to see the beautiful Gloria once more. He leapt up the steps to the door and knocked. However, it was not Gloria who answered, but a man and a woman. If Mary was still alive, she would have told Fred that they were the exact same couple that had greeted her in her dream. He asked where Gloria was, and the old woman invited him in to wait, that Gloria was changing into something more comfortable. And as the smiling Fred sat on the couch, clasping the lily, he was unaware of a mass of silver tentacles, silver like Gloria's hair, sliding behind him, ready to envelop him.
All right. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Uh, the story is written by Virgil North, and I had to look that name up. I didn't recognize it, and I just went to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. He only has five credits on that. Um, four of them are short stories during this era of House of Mystery and House of Secrets. He also wrote an adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, illustrated by Bernie Wrightson for the series Bernie Wrightson, Master of the Macabre, published by Pacific Comics. And that I would like to check out. Um, actually, on Virgil North, I was actually doing a little research there myself. Yep. And actually, Virgil North is actually Mary Screenies. Really? Yeah, I, I saw this on the comic database that uh, it was a pseudonym that she was using. Hmm. That apparently that she she was doing a number of the on on the romantic line oh. for DC, and then she was writing stories as well for Joe for Joe Orlando under this name. Hmm. And apparently, and it was, it was interesting. I, I only just found out this today that she was co-writing a number of stories that Steve Skeets did in the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets, but she did not ask for credit, and apparently that there was some falling out with Joe Orlando, the editor, and that's why that she never got the credit that Steve Skeets actually just put in those stories on behalf of the two of them. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, 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 it actually is interesting, and then going on later on she was then a co-creator with steve gerber she actually wrote a number of stories with steve gerber as well and she was a co-creator of omega the unknown <laughs> and she was also the apparently this was again i just saw this in wikipedia that she was the she was the inspiration behind howard the duck's girlfriend from that series as well <laughs> wow, that's i can't decide if that's flattering or dubious honor but that's wow that's amazing yeah yeah i didn't have yeah. any of that information i didn't bother to look it up i just assumed it was like kind of like yeah, a low it, level it was, it was, editor or staffer who got a writing gig four times but yeah. yeah it was just so unusual that um i suppose it was because i when like yourself i looked at i saw virgil north and i i couldn't like you know like it was a name that i was very unfamiliar with mm -hmm. and then i just did a little searching on and then just found found this interesting piece that it was actually it was actually a woman writing on the name of virgil north hmm. oh, i like that thanks yeah. for sharing that yeah so. yeah um as for the story itself i i, I like this well I have always liked this story, I think, sort of in spite of the plot. <laughs> um, if it, like, I, I read this in the, the House of Mystery Digest, so there's like ten stories in there. This one stood out to me a lot because of the art, and we can talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah. The story itself, I think, is a little bit problematic in that I was going to say he, but she, I guess, I think they're just like, too many shocking revelations for just a nine-page story. My issue with the whole story in in that is that you think that this is just a once-off, and then you find out that Fred did he, he apparently had planned the whole thing all along, and it's it's sort of unusual that it, you're looking at it at one stage, and Fred just seems to arrive at the house, and he, he and he's scared along with Mary when the door's opening. But then it's sort of revealed later, oh, I knew about Gloria and this is my whole plan. I'm just going to get rid of my car and it's just going to be myself and Gloria for now and forever. So it's it's sort of a weird sort of um, it just goes from one in from from that direction until oh, it is actually uh, sort of um, 
it was actually a plan by Fred. And then it sort of looked that uh, Gloria decided that uh, she would prefer to eat him rather than to, to be with him. But then that's the kind of thing that it's like, if it was his plan, like, had he been to that house before? Did he know Gloria or or Uki or the the old parents? Like, uh, he seemed... He seemed at at times like surprised by things that if this was always his intention to lure his wife there to kill her, it seems like some of the stuff he would have known. Otherwise, like, why would he have bothered or why would if he had been there before, why wouldn't Gloria or Uki or whatever the monster is just have devoured him then? Like, it, it's this weird kind of too, too complicated for the situation for something that should just be like a simple monstrous gelatinous blob kind of devouring people exactly it's it's just um it's it went in one direction then she brought it back mm. to another direction and then it sense and then it went to another direction again right. well i suppose i suppose we're saying with it's it's virgil north stroke mm-hmm. mary screens but i suppose as well i suppose bernie wrightson plotted it as well so maybe the plot sort of um came first and Mary was trying to make sense of what she was seeing in the art. That's, that's true. It could have been more or less like the old Marvel style where he was just drawing the page and then they were scripting and lettering over. Um, in which case, I, I think there is a little bit more of a problem because I also think like the pacing in the story, like I don't know why we need the dream in the beginning, why we yeah. need Mary's prophetic dream that she dreamed about like the, these old people and this monster, the same type of thing, just before it devours her. And like, because I also think that, in a way, it sort of like spoils because we get that shot of what like the thing is, and it comes up three more. It comes up three times. We see this thing going after people three times, and I think it's most shocking the first time in the dream, and that's the one that kind of doesn't matter. So it feels like that revelation is not only unnecessary for such a short story, but kind of spoils the terror of it. So. It does. It does really. It's. It's sort of. Um, it's. It as you said. It just spoils the terror because you know, like if 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 it's if it was just there in the first place. And I suppose there's another issue with the plot in that uh, if Mary had sort of this dream already that she was in the swamp before and that she had and she was there, then why did she when Fred decided to direct the car, <laughs> directed the drive down to the swamp? Did she say no, 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 no? We don't need to go down there. Let's let's just go to the beach or something like that. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Getting to the art, because uh, yeah, I do have some problems with the with the story and the plot. Like it, it's one of those things. And truth be told, this could be said for a lot of like short horror stories from this era. Is they don't hold up really well under heavy scrutiny. A lot of these stories, just by their nature, have to be sort of superficial horror stories. You just read them and you move on to the next thing. And I think that that might be sort of the way. But as a podcaster. I don't have the liberty of enjoying the stories that way. I know. So we're, we are forced to kind of look at these things and, and really kind of hold a candle to them and see see all the imperfections. But the art, at least, I, I really like. And it starts with, like, the first page when I think Wrightson had a way of utilizing Kane in these stories in a way that really works. Um, and the previous segment, The Secret of the Egyptian Cat, that I just covered with Sean, he integrates Kane into the narrative as as the person hearing this story and through which we get it. This one, I, I like the case because he introduces Kane dressed up. Instead of he's he's not in his suit, he's taking a break from the House of Mystery, he's going on vacation. He's dressed in like an old-style like swimsuit where it's like a one-piece, like like shorts that go up over the shoulders and everything. He's got a rubber ducky floaty around his waist. He's got a fishing rod and a beach ball. 
but he still got his like bifocals, the glasses, and everything, and just like the silliness of that. I think really works for this. It 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 is it is it is a lovely image. I mean, it's sort of like your swim your swimsuit edition there now with Kane in all his glory. Yeah. And um, it, it was it was an, and and again again at the end where yeah. he's just uh, lying there in his swimsuit in the swamp and uh, the feet yeah. are out and he's just lazing around enjoying <laughs> enjoying the water. <laughs> yeah. Um, for the setting of the swamp in the first couple of pages, when we see it, and it's it's Bernie Wright's drawing a swamp, which he can do better than pretty much anybody. Um, how creepy it looks, like the the natural foliage, but how dead the the trees look in the house and everything like that. Um, yeah. I looked up the timeline. This was the last story that Wrightson produced before he started the Swamp Thing ongoing series. So oh. this this issue of House of Mystery came out three months before Swamp Thing number one. And where was it then in relation to House of Secrets 92 then? Um, uh, the... It would have been a little bit, probably less than a year before. Because I, oh, right. I think House of okay. Secrets 92 was roughly one year before Swamp Thing number one. Right. Um, I, okay. I'd have to check to see like if the, the the months match up. So this was a few months after that. Yeah. Yeah, but it it is beautiful the the way he sort of the sort of I suppose the denseness of the swamp. It just casts the beautiful shadows there, and you know, like faces are half hidden or fully hidden. Mm-hmm. Like even in there in page two and panel one. You don't see Mary's face at all. It's completely hidden in the shadows of the trees underneath, and part of Fred's face is sort of half in shadow, is partly in shadows, and mm. you can just see the eyes there. And this is where I think Bernie writes is just in his eyes. You can just see, like in panel one and panel two of that second page, there, the eyes are the eyes of Fred are just sort of like he's. He looks browbeaten. He, he's yes. not enjoying being with Mary, and he yes. just he he just wants to, he just wants to end the relationship, but he doesn't know how. I had those same thing in my notes. Like you can tell, he is not happy in his marriage, and that I mean sets it up. Like when when she gets attacked by this horrible gelatinous monster, she's being dragged away, and he's just all smiles for the beautiful looking Gloria. And oh, yeah. you just see, like, when she's in, in when Mary's nagging him, the first two panels on page two, and he's not even looking at her. And he's just yeah. looking off in the distance with sort of these dead eyes and just kind of like, yeah, anywhere but here. And it's, <laughs> no, yeah, perfectly set up there, yeah. yeah. Um, and the other characters that writes and designs, I mean, the the old crone and the, the husband, I guess, the, the sort of parents, I guess, were led to assume of Gloria and Uki that we see in the dream and then at the end they're kind of stereotypically like these older creepy people of the house and they they sort of fit the trope that you would expect from this kind of story but that just kind of makes it work that much better i think yes and i i think even looking at them now you know like in the dream sequence compared to mary mm-hmm. mary Bernie didn't draw Mary as a beautiful person. It was just an ordinary looking person. Mm-hmm. But in comparison to the, when you see her face amongst, uh, in, in the same setting as with the crone and, uh, and, and, and the, the, and the dad, you know, like you can just see that compared to those two, that she, she looked much more better than, the, better than, the, than those other two individuals, mm-hmm. you know? I love the description for the. It looks like cranberry jelly with tentacles. 
<laughs> no. um, and I'm not sure if the inspiration was something out of like an HP Lovecraft story, but it kind of has that like Elder God just like in like non-human, just something so like formless and ageless that it's there. But the story, the cover to House of Mystery 204 is one of my all-time favorite like horror covers and one of my favorite Bernie Wrightson covers. Um, I used it in some of the early promo images for this podcast before I ever launched the first episode. Um, I just yeah. I really love that cover. It's it's a beautiful cover, actually. It, um, I'm I'm right in saying that in the cover that the gelatinous blob is green, and I mm. think actually the green is probably an even better, I suppose, visual f- for that than the than I suppose the cranberry jelly version that mm-hmm. we get in the actual story itself. Which version are you looking at in the are you looking at it from the original issue or I think I'm looking at it from the original issue okay. uh, where Mary would be where actually the 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 girl looks like Mary in the front but I think she has blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, she does. Am I right in that? Yeah. yeah. I'm reading the story from the um the Digest, the House of Mystery Digest and okay. it is green in her dream even though it says cranberry jelly with tentacles, there yeah. the monster is green and actually when Uki comes for Mary at the dinner table, like when, when Gloria is describing it, it's green there. But in the last page, the monster, presumably Gloria now, is sneaking up on Fred. There, it's kind of pinkish. Maybe to distinguish okay. that it is a second, like, maybe there are two of these things. Maybe Uki and Gloria are two different things. That's that's the way it's presented, yeah. at least. But, so they are covered two different colors in, in this printing. Okay, yeah, I think I'm just looking at the copy. I've got a copy, which is the original printing. And uh, yeah, it's sort of uh, when Uki is, is there when uh, at the meal with Gloria, mm-hmm. it's still the cranberry color mm. there. And then at the end, it's, um, as I said in my synopsis, it's a, it's more of a silvery tentacle yeah. version, so which sort of matches Gloria's hair yeah. in, 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 in the... Which 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 was fine with you know like I suppose in the reprint that you had I suppose it probably distinguishes a bit better with green and silver but in this story I you can tell from its the silver that it's in the same sort of color as glorious hair so, mm, yeah yeah I suppose one point that I I put out is that when you see Mary when in after the meal and you just see her face as the the eyes. <laughs> The Bernie's Wrightson just does the eyes so beautifully. It's sort of like the horror is there in the eyes. They just the you can they they nearly go into pinpricks the little, the eyes mm-hmm. at the end where she goes good lord choke at that face the the face is sort of you know you can just see the horror in the face and yes. it's, he just does so brilliantly there. And then he, and then I don't know whether it is Virgil or, or chosen, chosen the little um, com- comedic beat there that Uki dear, you're late for dinner again. You know it's bad for your digestion. <laughs> <laughs> and then she, she's talking away to Fred as Uki is taking, is swallowing up Mary. Uki's a sweetheart, but if he ate all his meals in time, I wouldn't have to spend a fortunate on bicarb. <laughs> and I was trying to think of like what what bicarb that was referencing. Was it like salt or was it like baking soda? Like I'm assuming it's a bicarbonate, but is there something like a brand called bicarb or was that a, like a product? I'm, oh, <laughs> you're asking someone from Ireland yeah. that question now, so I'm not really too sure. But, but. Uh, yeah, I was trying to get the reference. I, I was assuming that it was like a bicarbonate, which I would think like either baking soda or like salt or something like that. But I don't know what she would be using it for. But yeah, I, I still I do like. I do like the sheer panic and terror 
that Mary is facing while Fred is just seems to be dazed, like lost with Gloria and, and how calm they are and the progression of the three panels on the top of page eight, as you see Mary being dragged through the doorway into the darkness as this green glop just sort of starts to consume her body and pull her away. And, and yeah. her last line is just a girl at the layers, just kind of like, be- and the whole time, like Fred is just talking to Glory, like, yeah, I'll go get rid of the car now. It won't take long. And like, not even looking at Mary as she's going away. Yeah. Like, doesn't even doesn't even give her the grace of like watching her die. Just I know it's just sort of like oh I just wanted to be getting rid of you now at this stage and <laughs> it's just myself and Gloria now and it's the same with Gloria. Gloria isn't even looking at uh, the situation mm-hmm. with Mary. She's she's got her face just <laughs> just silently looking at uh, at Fred and. It's very hard to judge her face as to whether, you know, like she really loves Fred or is she just sort of thinking, okay, my dinner's about to be coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it. So it's just the predatory nature of whatever this is. But, uh, yes. Yeah. So. It, is, it is a very, um, it's a very interesting story. And um, as I said, at the end, then. You just see poor Fred there. He's just holding his lily, and he's just—he's <laughs> just—he just, he just seems to be in peaceful contemplation. He's not realizing what's behind him, and you can just see the crone and the father, and the smiles are coming on their faces as they know Gloria is just about to have a have a good meal for herself. <laughs> yeah, you can see the tentacle reaching out. It's like almost got his hair. It's just about to reach out and grab his face, and it's oh, so good, so good. Yeah, and, and he did well actually, Bernie Wrightson, because you know, like it just left that to the imagination that mm-hmm. you, we don't we don't need to see Fred Beans. We just know from that point, and obviously Kane Stinger at the end, you know, like that um, he should he he, he should have realised that there, there would be a strong family resemblance between Uki and Gloria. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean the story. As I said, it's problematic when you really boil it down and really try to like piece it together and follow the plot, and I don't think that was necessarily the intention. But the art really carries us through, and that's why I chose this for a tribute episode to Bernie Wrightson. It's it's a little bit different. It's still a short story. It it doesn't have, you know, vampires or monsters or werewolves or things like that. It's just this this just glop of like of goop with these tentacles and this the idea of the horror that whatever this thing is does as it pulls these people into the darkness. And yeah, I just like that. When I, when I read this one the first time, I was like, this story stuck with me just because of that visual and that idea. I think if you didn't, if there was no word balloons or anything like that, you could easily follow the story and, you know, like probably what's in your mind will probably come up with something, you know, like something just as good as what was written there. Now, now it's probably the style at the, at the time. And as you said, Bernie probably just drew it, and then it was a case of Virgil North stroke Mary Screenies trying to tr- trying to uh, put put words to this. But um, it's the art that really drives the story completely, and it is it is, it is a beautiful example of of Bernie at, Bernie at his best. Yep, and that'll probably be the last word we have for this story. Jimmy, thank you very much for coming on Midnight the Podcasting Hour to to share this with me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks very much, Ryan. I mean, I've 
I've I've been listening to your podcast a long time, and to to think that I'm going to be on one of them now it's 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 amazing, and especially for a tribute to Bernie Wrightson, one of the one of the great artists, and I'm. And I'm looking forward to hearing the hearing the other two stories in this podcast. Probably, probably not too much about my contribution. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully your listeners will be able to discern the Irish accent fairly okay. But, uh, no, but no. yeah, it, this this has been a, this has been a, this has been a great uh, this has been a great joy to be a part of. Well, I, I do appreciate it, and I I had a lot of fun. I'm sure my listeners did too. Folks, we're going to take another promotional break right now. When we come back, we're actually not going that far away from the swamp. We're diving right back into the bayou with Swamp Thing Issue 3. Stick around. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHcast. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHcast analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHcast on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity! Jocularity! And we are back for one more story and one more guest. He is a man of many shows here on the Fire and Water Network, including First Strike, Ohatmu or Not, and FW Team Up. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the first time to this show, Siskoid. What's up, man? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I, I'm, I love me some Swamp Thing, and that's what we're doing today. Absolutely, that's what it is. But before we get to that, same question as all the previous guests. What is your history or your experience with horror comics or horror in general? Well, I think my first horror comics were probably at a very early age because, um, as I've talked about before, the French-Canadian experience is very different. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and you're reading Tintin and Asterix and mm-hmm. the Smurfs. But uh, and those are horror based. But then you if you wanted to read American comics and you were not yet proficient in English, you would get these jumbo books is what we did. Bass and I who had the same experience where these are trade paperbacks, I guess, from way back. And you'd have a collection of really random comics. It would be a mix of Marvel, DC and probably Charlton in there uh, in black and white and translated. And, um, you know, between that issue of, of that random issue of 70s Fantastic Four and that random issue of, of 70s Flash, you would have horror stories pulled from whatever, you know, uh, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, of course, but probably the Marvel equivalents and the mm-hmm. Charlton equivalents. And so the, the, those horror stories were sort of just padding in there and never quite my favorites because I'm maybe eight years old in this story. And they're going, oh, this is creepy. No continuing characters. I'm getting these books for the superheroes, you know. So this is, this is my, first, uh, my first few. And by the time I'm actually buying American comics and I can read English, I'm uh, 11, 12, 13. And uh, I did try out some Saga of the Swamp thing back when, uh, well, some Len Wein issues and then, you know, Alan Moore and um, the Alan Moore stuff freaked me out and kept me away until I, I was an adult is what happened. I can't and, uh, imagine. 
<laughs> yeah, my first Alan Moore issue was the the one with um, it's revealed that Matt Cable is being possessed by bugs, which are arcane. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, no, it's super creepy. Got to tie into sort of the, the issue that we're talking about here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's oh no, uh, and so it really my if if I had a love affair or a, a you know a, a Batman phase with horror comics. <laughs> It's when Vertigo or when the, the stuff that would become Vertigo really hit uh, when I was college age and then fell back into Swamp Thing, fell into Hellblazer, fell into uh, whatever else, the Vertigo Sandman, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those imprints were publishing. And um, uh, then so I, I read quite a few horror comics, uh, indies and uh, from Vertigo at that time. And I, I – you know, and a lot of that stuff really still stands up. Once they got rid of the comics code, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe the horror stuff was more interesting. And I was interested in things other than superheroes as well. Where along the line did you discover Bernie Wrightson or how did you discover him? Well, either early or late because it's, you know, it the 70s are a bit of a blank spot for me as far as comics go um you know i i, I would read i you know everything i read was either the, those black and white reprints uh, in french or uh, you know a spot issue here and there or showcase presents you know uh, gives us a, quite a lot of house of mystery for example mm-hmm. but um he was not an artist that was necessarily on my radar uh and i i would sometimes even confuse him with other <laughs> artists <laughs> Uh, you know, when people I, I would be talking about Joe Orlando, but I, I'd be thinking in my head that he was uh, Wrightson or Mike Plug yeah. was the is, is the Marvel equivalent mm-hmm. of uh, Bertie Wrightson. So it's really um, it's much later when I read the original Swamp Thing series and uh, re- rediscovered him for the first time, let's say. But uh, I'd seen some stories here and there, of course, that I either attributed to him or didn't. So, so I come I come to him rather late, but maybe at a time when I can more appreciate the the, the workmanship in art uh, that perhaps my teen self would not have been able to. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I certainly didn't appreciate his work until more recently and as an adult, too. So I'm there with you. But uh, yeah, quite impressive. So. Okay, listeners, well, uh, as Cisco had mentioned, I mean, you know that I couldn't do a Bernie Wrightson special and not talk about Swamp Thing. If you go back to episodes two and seven of this podcast, you can hear me and Ben Avery talk about the original Swamp Thing short story that appeared in House of Secrets 92, as well as the first two issues of Swamp Thing ongoing series that followed. Ben has since continued his coverage of Swampy on his Muck Monsters podcast, which is part of the Comic Book Time Machine. It's a great show. I highly recommend it. But Siskoid and I are going to pick up where Ben and I left off and review Swamp Thing Issue 3. The book was cover dated February 1973, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it hit the stands on December 7th, 1972. Joe Orlando edited the issue, Len Wein wrote it, and of course, Bernie Wrightson illustrated it. Swamp Thing number three has been reprinted in DC Special Series number 14, Roots of the Swamp Thing issue two, the Swamp Thing Dark Genesis trade paperback, Secrets of the Swamp Thing trade paperback, Roots of the Swamp Thing hardcover and trade paperback, the Swamp Thing Digest, and most recently in the Swamp Thing The Bronze Age Omnibus. It is also available on Comixology. Whew, okay. The story called The Patchwork Man picks up right after the last issue. 
dawn comes to the quiet eastern European village nestled sleepily beneath the shadow of Castle Artane. The villagers have no idea that they owe their continued existence to the monstrous Swamp Thing looking out from one of the castle's battlements. For it was the Swamp Thing who sacrificed his own humanity, and perhaps his only chance at regaining the human form of Dr. Alec Holland in order to stop the mad wizard Anton Arcane from using his powers against the village below. With Arcane dead and his unmen scattered, the Swamp Thing wanders the castle's stone corridors until he comes across Arcane's laboratory. Here he may find the right chemical concoction to transform back into a human, but while the scientific knowledge remains in Swamp Thing's mind, his physical body is far too brutish, too savage to handle the chemistry, and he breaks the glass vials and beakers. In anguish, Swamp Thing storms out of the lab, but the ancient, rotted castle floor begins to give way beneath his weight. As Swamp Thing begins to fall into the black chasm, his hand is caught at the last minute. Swamp Thing gazes up at his rescuer, only to look upon another monster as hideous as himself. This creature, not unlike the undead monster of fabled Dr. Frankenstein, appears sewn and stitched together, his different body parts each coming from a different person, truly a patchwork man. But said monster is unable to hold on to Swamp Thing's wet, mossy wrist for long. After a moment, Swamp Thing falls down, down into the black bowels of the castle, finally crashing down on the rocky floor far below. Meanwhile, thousands of miles above, Federal Agent Matt Cable has tracked the Swamp Thing's travels from the bayou to the Balkans. Cable, who blames the Swamp Monster for the deaths of his friends, Alec and Linda Holland, rides in a seaplane accompanied by the Holland's adopted dog, and because the dog carries a secret video transceiver, Cable's journey is followed by the mysterious head of the Conclave. Matt Cable arrives at the village beneath Castle Arcane and questions the locals about the Swamp Thing. Time after time, he is met with silence and scorn until he walks into a medical clinic and meets the beautiful, white-haired Abigail Arcane. Back at the castle, Swamp Thing wakes up to burning debris raining down on him. High above, the patchwork creature has destroyed Anton Arcane's lab, turning it into a blazing inferno. Swamp Thing crawls along the flooded floor until he reaches a stream leading out of the castle, just in time as the whole building explodes, showering the nearby valley with wood and stone. The people of the village pour outside to see the destruction up close. Abigail tries to get away from Matt Cable, tries to get to the castle to see her uncle, but the Fed stops her. There is no way anyone could have survived the blast, Cable tells her, and he too despairs for the loss of the swamp monster and the answers that he was looking for. In the forest on the edge of the village, the patchwork man crawls out of the river and begins walking back. As he does, he is beset by memories of his former life as Gregory Arcane. He had been walking through this same forest to see his daughter, Abigail, when he stepped on a mine. The explosion wrecked his body, but his mind survived. Grigori's brother, the mad doctor Anton, saved him and fixed the body with uh, spare parts and limbs of other people. The result was a disheveled and disgusting patchwork man. The horror of his own appearance caused Grigori to lash out violently, so his brother locked him away in the dungeon until he was freed when the Swamp Thing killed Anton Arcane in the last issue. Now the patchwork man continues his walk through the woods. 
until by fate or coincidence, he comes across his own daughter, Abigail, along with Matt Cable. Abigail doesn't recognize her own father. She screams as Cable draws a gun to protect her. The patchwork man easily knocks Cable aside and grabs Abigail, who faints away in his arms. The patchwork man carries Abigail across a wooded bridge toward the ruins of the castle. His heavy footfalls on the bridge rouse the Swamp Thing, who is hiding in the water below. Swamp Thing recognizes the creature and assumes he might be a danger to the white-haired girl. Swamp Thing climbs up the bridge. The patchwork man thinks he may have found a similar monster who understands his plight. But when Swamp Thing tries to check on the girl, the patchwork man lashes out again. The two monsters fight on the bridge as a mob of angry, torch-bearing villagers led by Matt Cable closes in on them. Desperate to keep Abigail away from the people, the patchwork man knocks Swamp Thing off the bridge and then runs off with the unconscious girl. Swamp Thing crawls up on the opposite bank as Cable and the villagers shoot at him from the bridge. The patchwork man sets Abigail down on the ash-crusted floor of the ruined castle. He begins to dig for a hideout when she regains consciousness. She picks up a still-burning piece of wood and hits the monster in the back. In anger, the monster that used to be Gregory Arcane raises his hand to strike his daughter, but the Swamp Thing catches his wrist in its grip. The two monsters resume their fight, but the floor beneath Abigail gives way and she falls, nearly into an endless chasm. But she holds onto one brittle pillar of wood. The angry mob closes in on their spot. Either of the monsters could turn and run, but they agree wordlessly to save the girl. Swamp Thing climbs out onto the pillar while the patchwork man climbs below. Gently, he supports Abigail and lifts her so that the Swamp Thing can grab her. Just as she is saved, the patchwork man loses his footing. In the final instant before he falls into the pit, Abigail Arcane looks into the creature's eyes and recognizes the love of her father. The crowd surrounds Swamp Thing, threatening to kill him, but the muck monster turns toward them and confidently walks toward Matt Cable. He carries the petrified Abigail Arcane and hands her over to the agent. Then, just as easily, Swamp Thing walks away from the villagers and the man who swore to kill him and disappears into the misty woods. Later, Matt Cable and Abigail Arcane board the seaplane bound for America. With no family left, Abigail looks to start a new life in the United States. For his part, Cable is still determined to track down the Swamp Thing for its part in the death of the Hollands. Neither of them realize, as the seaplane takes air, that the Swamp Thing is holding onto the wing of the plane, following them back home. Swamp Thing issue three. Siskoid, what did you think? Mm, let me see. I think the as far as Bernie Wrightson's art in this, uh, it, it is gorgeous, but also we're not quite at the level that he will bring the series to. But I'll say that. And um, as far as the story goes, I like it, but Len Wein does commit one of what I consider uh, writerly sins, mm. which is using the 
second person point of view, mm. uh, you know, a narration. Uh, <laughs> the first time I ever saw that was in a um, in a story in a tomb of Dracula. Mm-hmm. And it was either Conway or Wolfman doing it. And um, I, it drives me crazy. It, dri- it just drives me crazy. Why am I the monster all of a sudden? <laughs> uh, so why are you talking to this monster? But at the same time, the, you know, the horror comics very often had this sort of purple prose, let's say, especially in this era. And um, after, after noting that he was committing that sin, I sort of got into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was a way to maybe personalize, you know, the, the monster's plight. Uh, and I sort of understood it as that. I think also the fact that we're dealing with two monsters, sort of who could be co-protagonists, or, or, or are at least in a similar plight, and neither of them can really speak. Um, and as much as we do get thought balloons from the Swamp Thing throughout this, but I, I feel like, like he, he might be trying to change up and use the second person for to break up the sort of inner monologue captioning for some of the monsters, but it, it does kind of get confusing and, and kind of goes back and forth between them from time to time. Yeah. I always think it's a little awkward. Yeah. You know, to, to do that, unless there's a very specific reason for it. Uh, and I think eventually it, it proves useful to, to, to do that. It, it's fine. And yeah, you you do have those two monstrous protagonists who are kind of the mirrors of one another. One, because the Swamp Thing is a patchwork plant creature mm-hmm. as well. You know, he's made up of different plants, although Wrightson doesn't necessarily draw him that way. I think there are two great ways to, to draw the Swamp Thing. And one of them is very de- you know the Steve Bissett the very detailed where you see a lot of uh, a lot of plant life going on inside the the skin of the monster and the other is uh what Wrightson does and what uh, a few other artists of course have done like Kelly Jones is make him sort of look gooey mm-hmm. I, I like that when they're the misshapen form of the monster and seems like it's uh, you d- you don't necessarily see it as a a mossy detailed uh you know feathered kind of creature but i don't know the muscles and all that look like they're waterlogged where it's Mm -hmm. it's mush there's mush to it yeah i feel like we we he's not to that point yet like wrightson and ween haven't established they i mean we it's gonna be a while before we kind of get into like like his even his powers of like plant regeneration and stuff like that that that's still like a couple of issues away um so i feel like they're still at this point He's just a monster who looks like this, who kind of like looks like his outer his his skin is sort of like plant like, but it's not like he's a composite or gestalt of like different like plants and and like chlorophyll sort of like like blood type of stuff. It's he's just not that type of monster yet. That's something that I think is almost a little bit of a retcon in how he's defined, or he's, he's just not defined that way yet this early in his existence. Or he doesn't realize it himself. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you know he. In this, he's worried that the patchwork man will break his neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that, that's not going to be a problem, Alex. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and the patchwork man, eh? It, I, obviously, Frankenstein's monster, right? Uh, and uh, you know how I, to me that was because we were talking about the jumbo books, and I had a, like a flash while we while you were doing the synopsis that the Frankenstein's monster comics that Marvel put out uh, in this era. Uh, you know, the Frankenstein's Monster comic actually came out uh, cover dated January of this same year, just mm-hmm. like the months before. Yeah. So uh, it's it, again because you know Swamp Thing, Man Thing, who copied who, that that right. kind of thing. And then you also have Patchwork Man, Frankenstein's Monster 
sort of juxtaposed. And also, you know, the Man Thing artist, Mike Flug, that I yep. mentioned earlier, yep. was also the artist on Frankenstein's Monster. Yeah. And, yep. and those were in the jumbo books uh, yep. <laughs> as well. So that's that was my first. So it's it's like obviously they're both copying uh, <laughs> from a literary work. It's not right. It's yeah, you know, it's Mary Shelley, but uh, or Universal movies, whatever is the the, the source of the look. But um, yeah, it's kind of weird that uh, around Swamp Thing, it's like Swamp Thing is this nexus of of industrial spies <laughs> going. Just oh, they're going to do a Frankenstein's monster um, story. Let's let's put one out. And and that's is sort of I mean th- this starts a well actually I guess more the second issue started this trend of basically Swamp Thing encountering a bunch of different B horror and pulp sci fi like tropes um, because he fought like the the mad wizard mad scientist in the second issue he fights Frankenstein's monster in this one in the fourth issue of Swamp Thing there's a werewolf. You know, after that, we've got like uh, like witches, like Salem witch trials. There's robots. There's space aliens. There's yeah. like a Cthulhu monster, like a, like an endless elder god type of thing. So just in like the first eight or nine issues or whatever, he, they kind of played up all of these little uh, little kind of classic tropes. Yeah, we mentioned the alien yeah. one in uh, First Strike Invasion because there's a sequel that yeah. takes yeah. place during the uh, invasion crossover mm-hmm. uh, to this. And yeah, this is was Len. The, this was Len Wein's uh, modus operandi on the, the book because when he picked it up again in the 80s as the saga of the Swamp Thing or late 70s, uh, it was it was still, uh, you know, that was the template. Mm-hmm. The, the Swamp Thing would fight different monsters. And the first one I ever got, he was against like a, a guy made a crystal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's a famous was, vampire one too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that was the, te- the template for Swamp Thing. And Alan Moore would change that template quite a lot later but yeah so we're still in the infancy of the book and this is this is of course still fresh and new and it's interesting that abby cable's father well her uncle's of course monstrous and her future love Mm -hmm. is the swamp thing and her father is frankenstein's monster so she will always have like monsters in her life and you always go for you know the, the the trope where the woman tends to go for someone who is like her father yeah. is is sort of prefigured here. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, this is the first appearance of Abigail Arcane, who will become Abigail Cable, who will become Abby Holland, the second most important figure in uh, in Swamp Thing's life. This is her first appearance. Um, we see her right on the cover. I didn't describe the cover. Um, it's just an image of Swamp Thing holding. Abby, just this, you know, white-haired woman who's kind of, like, fainted dead in his arms. There's, you know, the villagers closing in in the background with pitchforks and torches. There's two kind of, like, ghoulish, like, spindly arms reaching up from him, supposed to be the Patrick Man. There's, like, a bolt sticking through the, like, the elbow joint of of the right arm. Um, Lots of cleavage on Abby in that, on the cover image that we don't really see repeated in the, in the issue. But what did you think of the cover? I, I noticed that I was doing some research yesterday, and uh, CBR, uh, the site, sort of noted it as one of the top five Swamp Thing covers of all time. I, I don't know. If, I, I mean, that's their their opinion. Yeah. Uh, the thing here is that yes, we we see a lot of cleavage. It's a very you know monster movie poster kind mm-hmm. of look, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of cleavage, but desperate not to show the Swamp Thing's ass. <laughs> this. There's shadow, there's smoke, there's, you know, hands. Uh, hands, yeah, yeah. Hair, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it, it, it plays with, you know, it's it's doing that. <laughs> and also the, the shape of the monster is very odd. And I think that's what Wrightson was going for is like almost like a dislocated shoulder kind yeah. of yeah. look. It's, you know, hunchbacked. Mm-hmm. kind of creature so it, it it's a bit busy to, to hide the ass where yeah. at, to the point where i think the middle of the cover is kind of hard to understand yeah um, but yeah i and you know the, the look of abby cable i just we we're talking about frankenstein and um it's very much like the white and black with the black streaks is the reverse of bride of frankenstein yeah that's true that that's hairstyle yeah, and you you kind of mentioned it like the pose, the look of the cover feels like like this could be the cover of a Frankenstein movie poster or like you know a yeah. version of like Son of Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein or whatever. Like he's he's carrying a woman as angry villagers with torches are closing in. He you could substitute Frankenstein's monster in this image for Swamp Thing and it would fit right into any movie or poster that you've seen. They were really going for a uh, like paying tribute to all the great monster films, you know. It's yeah, particularly it's the lo- gothic, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Okay. And I guess throughout the that ten issue original series, mm-hmm. that's kind of what they go for. But this here, it, it you know, it's very, it's very obvious. Um, uh, of course, the true monster is Matt Cable. Always will be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is that reaction? Eh? The whole uh, oh, you lost family, but I lost much more. <laughs> Answers, <laughs> and his his reasoning throughout this issue is really tenuous. Like, first of all, okay, he's he, he somehow he tracks Swamp Thing, who is kidnapped by the Unmen and taken aboard a seaplane to this castle on the other side of the planet. And United States federal agent gets the grant to go after this monster. He brings the dog along, which just so we have this connection to the Conclave, which persists until i think issue seven when we get the batman issue and it's not even really that great a payoff but so the dog is there just for that one panel we don't see then he just goes around this village just asking the people if they've seen a swamp monster like what what kind of answers was he expecting and then by the end of it after he like he takes abby and he lets swamp thing walk off into the mist then they get back in the plane to go back to the United States, and she's like, yeah, my family's dead. I'm I'm quick to leave this area, like, take me to America. And he's like, okay, I'll take you there, but I'm not going to give up my quest to find the Swamp Thing. It's like, why would you head back to the United States to look for him when you know he's just wandering around in the woods in this, you know, village in, like, the Carpathian Mountains? He's kind of lucky that the, the Swamp Thing's piggybacking on the, yeah, yeah. On the plane because, yeah, it's um... – and, and and can you really fly to Europe in one of those things? Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like a yeah. nine hour, like a ten hour flight. It's comics. It's uh, yeah, the, the, yeah. this is yeah, just like uh, the the destruction of the castle, or just before it gets destroyed. Actually, the because that, I don't know what was in Arcane's lab, but you know, <laughs> it destroys not the room, the the whole thing. And when Swamp Thing is falling through the the floor and uh, through the sort of rafters, I mean, this is a I understand this is a very a vertical kind of castle, mm. but the, its innards are just jagged wooden <laughs> rafters. It's like we're – oh, no, he fell through the set. <laughs> you know, doesn't it? Yeah. it what, what, is, what are these foundations? What is this castle built on? And again, I, maybe this is uh, – maybe this is just like a cool visual, which it is, but – also, maybe it is sort of we're still paying tribute to old movies where obviously the castle is a set. Right, right. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's kind of – I don't know. I, I think it's it's kind of winking at the, the readers uh, in, in that way. I, I wouldn't put it past them to, 
to be doing this on purpose. <laughs> yeah, you really get the sense that there are no actual functional rooms in that castle. It's just like sheer drops and like pits and blackness and and shadows and like creaky boards. Yeah, so. and then when it, it collapses, it, mm-hmm. you know, there it, it becomes a pit. It right. becomes. You know, the hell mouth. Right, Basically. Right. As we'll know that Arcane eventually will return as, you know, eventually has demonic, mm. you know, ties. So it, it sort of works in that, you know, sort of mystical, magical sense, but also as movie magic that they're showing you. You know, we're in a movie. Swamp Thing just crashed a movie. Or he's crashing different movies as he goes along. <laughs> The Patchwork Man seems to fall to his death in the story, but uh, he does actually make one more appearance. He gets a short story of his own in House of Secrets issue 140. Uh, I have not read the story, but it's uh, written by Jerry Conway with art by Nestor Redondo, who Nestor Redondo took over the art chores for, on Swamp Thing after Bernie Wrightson left. So that might be a cool story to look up sometime. Yeah, and I think he does make a handful of probably cameo appearances mm-hmm flashback appearances throughout Saga of the Swamp Thing. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's that amazing who's who page as well, if you want to count that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one too. So, yeah. I actually, I kind of had to do some digging because his, his monologue was a little bit confusing when he when he wakes up in the river and he's, like, walking back and it's flashing back to his life before his accident. Like, while he's, like, looking, he's like, who are these men coming to take his daughter and what's going on? I actually had to, like, look that up and find like the wiki entry that explained that it was basically he spent so much time working on his experiments or doing whatever his business was. He was so, he was away so often that essentially like the village, like the the government was going to take Abby away from him. Like he was like negligent or something. Like they were basically just going to say he was, he was a a deadbeat dad sort of like they were just going to take, take his daughter away. So he was on his way to take her back when he stepped on this unexploded mine in the middle of the woods Kind of a, a weird thing to just explain, like, how he ends up blown up, but I don't know. Yeah, although that is part of the mirroring with the swab thing. So, yeah. you know, the patchwork plant and the patchwork mm. flesh, and they're both, both, you know, in, the, in nature and get exploded. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and then wake up and they're a monster. Yeah. So there's that, you know. Yeah. I would have thought that Abby would actually have appeared, you know, along with the Anton Arcane story. Uh, just to you know, just to, to set her up as the niece, but um, um, because here, she, if if this is her first appearance, then it's just uh, she's out. Of, you know, she comes out of nowhere and has has family, uh, you know, from from a prior story. So, uh, or maybe you know, maybe there are just a whole lot of arcanes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a common name in the the Carpathian Mountains. Yeah, no, they they or the Balkans or whatever. Yeah, they set her up as the sort of damsel in distress that that and give her a reason why the Patchwork Man would target her specifically, and then they just decide to keep the character. They're like, yeah, we need another woman in this comic, a recurring female lead, so they bring her back. and And I don't even know if Weena Wrightson had any idea of how important she would end up becoming to the saga, but yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean. Who's going to run that candy store? <laughs> yeah. Unanswered questions. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I could say again, I mean, the art, I mean, I don't have any complaints about it. It does. It's not as striking as it will get, but I do think uh, Wrightson just, and, and Ween too, through, even though it, some of it is overwritten and he uses the the sinful second person that you alluded to, 
there is such pathos uh, in the characters and both of the monsters, and, and we get it captured here, and and the insanity of Anton Arcane just in a few panels when he's making this monster on pages like eleven and twelve, and and the horrific body, the body horror really um, that we capture in these. Um, it's it's great. I, I you know yeah I can just I can look at these pages all the time. So and both monsters you know looking at each other and deciding that. Uh, Abby is more important than whatever mm-hmm. feud they have, and it's not really a feud. They're just recognizing a monster right. and want to fight that monster. There's no, uh, you know, and because they're nonverbal, they can't they can't come to an agreement other than just you know, a sort of mental consensus. And so, so it, they're both tragic characters, tragic creatures, mm-hmm. and um, and so at the end, they they have to pull their resources together so you know it it very much works and with Wrightson I think one of his best qualities that we're really he's inking himself Mm -hmm. right and it's the inks that the the pools of darkness and the shading that he creates that really makes the comic uh, come alive and seem you know look interesting Uh, you know just like that explosion the castle explosion for example is one of the best panels Uh, you know it's a very simple image but just the way he renders the the fireball the, the smoke it is great and it's something that if you're penciling and then somebody else does your inks over the on top of that i'm not sure you would even you know, pencil it the same way mm-hmm. uh, but because you know that you're doing you're also doing your own inks he creates light effects which uh, are not easy to do you know back in the four color process days right. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, atmosphere that he brings to it, knowing that he's going to be inking certain parts of it. So a lot of his work seems more, you know, it's more about the inks than the pencils. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to mention that nobody draws a gothic laboratory like he does. Just <laughs> like in just like a few little panels in the flashback to when Anton turns him into the patchwork man, but makes me think of... Um, some of like the the major like double page splashes. I if you've ever seen uh, Wrightson's illustrated Frankenstein based on the Mary Shelley novel, um, he's got huge pages of just the Frankenstein's lab. It's insane. It's uh, glorious. So I gotta I gotta find that. Yeah. Um, my, my last little note, and I don't remember if this came up in issues one or two, but at the very end when Swamp Thing gives Matt Cable over or gives Abby over to Matt. He has these lines, if you want the girl so badly, Cable, take, you can have her. The way the word balloon is done, it has these little bubbles attached instead of like a straight tail that would normally have with, a, with word balloons. Mm-hmm. And it makes it look like it's the same effect that you usually give to a thought bubble, not a dialogue bubble. And this continues throughout the first you know couple issues of this book. And for the longest time, I was like, is he speaking out loud or is he thinking like are are the the characters just understanding this um, because his thought bubbles and his word bubbles unless he's always kind of speaking out loud they they seem to have the same kind of effect so you really just need to pick up on context clues to see is he speaking or not and because for the longest time I was like I thought he was nonverbal when I was reading some of these early issues but it's a little bit of a weird effect and I'm not sure why the if it was the letterer who, who was responsible for that, or if it was part of the art, I'm not sure who who did that. Yeah, um, yeah but here he could be thinking it. There's mm-hmm. no, I mean, the body language is enough to. It's like he's thinking, does oh, you want her 
take her, but it's all in his mind, and they don't. I don't think they hear it. Mm-hmm. That, that's not, in this issue. I don't know how that that translates in in other stories. Yeah, and uh, yeah, in subsequent issues, it gets a, it's even more confusing. Where it's like there might be he's he seems to be thinking, but they're like responding as if he's talking. So. Yeah, again, I I like this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to continue to cover these Swanting issues from time to time, not necessarily in the same order that I originally intended and not with Ben Avery again. He's doing his own thing with his show, and it's great. For those of you listening, I highly recommend checking out Muck Monsters. Um, yeah, Cisco, thank you for uh, for covering this one with me. Where else can people find you on the podcastosphere? The podcast sphere, I'm in the same sphere you are, so that's the Fire and Water <laughs> Podcast Network, where I do, as you said at the top of the show, First Strike the Invasion Podcast, um, Oh Hot or Not, and um, what else? What was the other one? Oh, FW Team Up, yeah. but also g- give me that Star Trek, which is based on a show you might have once had, and uh, <laughs> uh, and other, you know, we no we're idea what you're thinking. talking about. No, not at all. But uh, we're always thinking up new ideas, so. Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. yeah. So every every Tuesday normally is is Canada Day on the FW Podcast Network. <laughs> oh, and a good day it is. So, okay, folks, we're going to take one more promo break, and then I will address your listener feedback from the last two episodes. Stick around. Stop and listen. Stop and listen to me. Listen, listen, listen to me. Get out, humans! Everyone, they're here already. You're next. November fourth. 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Danigarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. All right, first up, we got the feedback for episode 17. That was when Martin Gray and I reviewed The Gourmet from the first issue of Plop. That episode dropped around Thanksgiving and featured the first appearance of substitute show host Johnny Oddball, who must have made a good impression because Rob Kelly and Brian Linton demanded more of him, and Martin called him the character find of 2017. Uh, The other comments on the Fire and Water Network website came from Chris Franklin, who said, According to a recent back-issue interview with Bob Rosakis, Plop was the best-selling title on DC's short-lived Comic Mobile. Think of an ice cream truck, but with comics. Mmm, delicious. Uh, Chris also said, I personally think the ending of the story actually works pretty well, because the idea of frogs in wheelchairs is pretty out there anyhow. Having already crossed the Rubicon into absurd, why not go all the way? Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, Chris adds, I have had frogs' legs on occasion. Each time, I feel kind of guilty because, well, the Muppet movie. Charles Durning was chasing Kermit across the country just to add his frog legs to his restaurant chain. They taste like chicken, no fooling. Uh, Brian Linton said, It's funny that I tend to think of gluttony as one of the more benign of the seven deadly sins, but seeing it play out like this really drives home how horrible it can be. 
Speaking of horror, I'm trying to decide if all of Kane's narration on page 4 enhances the feeling of impending doom or kills it. I wonder if it would have been better to simply let the art speak for itself in the build-up to the splash page. Uh, That's a good question, and it really might depend on the reader and his or her particular tastes. Um, I have a feeling, though, if this tale were being told today for the first time, there would be no captions or narration, just the visuals and the sound effects. But that's kind of more of the the style, I guess, of, of comic storytelling these days. Uh, Rob Kelly said, I can't pinpoint one thing that flipped me to being a vegetarian, though stories like this were assuredly part of it. I think in the early days, DC marketed Plop as weird horror and would run it in ads alongside House of Mystery, House of Secrets, etc. I think as the book got sillier and less horror-y, it became more of a generic humor mag, but it must have remained pretty beloved among the staff. DC voted two whole digest collections to reprinting Plop stories long after the book had been canceled. Well, yeah, that goes to what Chris was saying about its popularity on something like the Comic Mobile. Mm-hmm. Ice cream truck with comics. Mm, so good. Uh, and the last comment on that episode came from Dr. Ange, who said, The creepiest thing about this episode was the way Mart said the line, Fresh, fresh, fresh. Creepy. And the last episode was our special and unorthodox Christmas episode, where PJ Frightful, Chris and Cindy Franklin, and the Irredeemable Shag presented an audio play version of The Night Prowler. Oh, and by the way, The Gourmet and The Night Prowler were both drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Very fitting for this episode, huh? Uh, Santaran asked a question that I really don't get. He said... So I get a star on top of a Christmas tree, but my question is, who thought it was a good idea to let Vlad Tepes decorate the top of the tree? I don't understand that. I I get Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler, the basis for Dracula, but what is the connection to the Christmas tree? Is there a visual thing that I'm not getting? I I don't know what that's about. Uh, Beyond that comment, Rob Kelly commended us on the fun way to present the story. Martin Gray called it a stellar interpretation of a classic, and we got Christmas and holiday wishes from Santaran, Martin, and Ward Hill Terry. So that is going to be all for this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. I hope you enjoyed us gushing over the work of Bernie Wrightson. The artist may be gone, but his art will live on, and I am confident we have not seen the last of it on this podcast. Next time... Well, at the moment, I'm not sure what's coming up next. Uh, I would like to do at least two more episodes this year, hopefully three. Paul Hicks and I are going to knock out the rest of Night Force sometime, and I also want to do another anthology special covering some vampire stories. But I don't know what order these things will fall. Whoa, 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 there's the bell? Really? You're playing me off already? Okay, really quick, once more, huge thanks to my guests, Sean Ross, Jimmy McGlinchey, and Siskoid. I'm Ryan Daly. Good night. Midnight. The podcasting hour is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at ryandaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker.
Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight. Yeah.